Hi everyone, welcome to All Things Creative. This is actually going to be more of an art chat because I have an artist visiting us today. I'm your host, Linda Riesenberg Fissler, um, and I actually like talking with my guest because he actually is on kind of the same journey I am with uh, being an author and an artist and, you know, I, I should say, I guess, master of all different kind of trades. So, um, welcome Scott. We have Scott Burdick with us today. Um, and welcome, Scott. So glad you're here. Thanks, Linda. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, we haven't talked in a while. The last time I think we talked was when your well, I don't know if we talked one or two times before, but we talked about your art and we talked about writing, and we're going to talk about that same um, bit today. And some of the pictures that we're looking at, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, is some of your paintings as well as a drawing that you did from your first book, uh, Nahala. Did I pronounce it right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about your writing journey and your artistic journey. And you basically just returned um, from your trip to India. So tell us a little bit about that and um, you know, how do you think that enhance, enhances your art and your writing? Um, yeah, we were in India for a month um, painting. And uh, we do a lot of those trips where there'll be a month, sometimes two months to uh, just various places all through Europe, but, you know, Africa and Tibet and Nepal and, you know, South America and Peru and Mexico and, and uh, you know, in the United States as well. And all those trips are kind of, you know, they're the inspiration for, for painting. And um, uh, certainly a lot of those, those things that I talk to people with about, uh, make their way into my books too. A lot of the characters. Uh, we had gone to India um, 12 years ago, about uh, all through about it was about five weeks, and we'd gone all through Rajasthan, and we just had a, hired a, a driver, and we went all all over the place. And uh, that was the time that I was working on Nahala, and okay. so a lot of those people that I met there and some of the characters there worked made their way into that first book, Nahala. So in fact, I have. Uh, the god Ganesha uh, becomes a character in the in the story, He's like a genetically engineered kind of recreation of a you know ten foot tall um, man with an elephant's head on them. And uh, you know a lot of that came a lot of those stories that he tells and things, places and stuff from his past that he recounts in the story come from people that I'd met there and talked to. And uh, the god Ganesha was just so beloved there. It was you know it was very clear that that was the most favorite of everybody's God because he was the God that, that gives protection and gets rid of barriers. So everybody has uh, Ganesha on their, um, you know, in their house or taxi cab drivers hanging from their cars. And uh, so it was interesting. So all those things kind of um, work their way into stories. Mm -hmm. And then of course, paintings, I take photographs and we hire people on this last trip. Uh, the first day, the first week we, we painted with a, uh, one just an incredible artist we think of him as like the sergeant of india um, <laughs> his name is uh, pramod kurlinkar and we'd met him at the portrait society and um, he invited us to visit if we ever come out there and since we were going out there we took a, a week uh, in the beginning of the trip and just stayed in like a farmhouse near where his parents live in the countryside mm -hmm. and uh, so he got us models and we all painted together um, also with uh, suchitra um, uh, Beausoleil, I think I'm saying her name right, Suchitra Beausoleil, and our friend Saim Shalian, 
Uh, and so uh, Simon's originally from Turkey, uh, lives in, in, in Kauai now, and Suchitra is probably everybody knows who she is. She's from India originally, but her and her husband live in the United States now, and she's just a great painter. Mm. So it was really fun. So we just painted models, and I would paint. we would paint during the day, and then just at the end of the day, the last couple hours of light, I would go out. Sometimes Sue would come with me. Sometimes it was just me uh, and a driver uh, that we had hired. And then I would go out to uh, people's farms and people's houses and little villages and little encampments where people were, um, you know, whenever they're building buildings there, um, there becomes like a little encampment with tents and people are there with their whole families. And then during the day they work on building. And, um, and so I'll just take photographs and meet people and talk to people. And um, that's what I did through the whole trip. Uh, after that part of the trip, then we went up to Udaipur and stayed there for like two and a half weeks and just uh, painted. Uh, I would paint every day landscapes and sometimes hire people. Um, and then in the evenings, I, again, I would drive out uh, with Sue or with Syme or with Sue Chitra um, and our driver or sometimes on my own. And uh, then I just go off and take photographs at farms or villages and uh, visit temples and, you know, and then talk to people too. I mm-hmm. mean, all the stories that I got, uh, <laughs> I could just talk forever. I mean, in fact, one story I actually recorded and put on YouTube when we got back because like our driver, there's just one example of like 50 or, 50 or 100 stories that I get when I paint people. But our driver, I noticed that he was, um, his name is Tulsi, that he was limping. Uh, and so we go out to some of the, the farm areas and stuff. Uh, you know, if it was steep or something, he would just kind of wait there back. Um, and, but he was limping. And so a couple of days I asked him how he got his limp. And he was like, oh, I got it from, it's kind of an interesting story. And he had been on a bus uh, with his family, with his son and 25 other people from his village. And they were going up to this mountain uh, to have a picnic. And they were on a bus and they'd, there was 50 people on there. And all of a sudden the bus was going down a hill way too fast to make the turn of all these switchbacks. Mm-hmm. It was just thousands of feet down. In fact, we were on that. We, we drove that same road uh, <laughs> with him uh, when we were going to some villages. But this was a bus. And he said he could tell they were going too fast for the, the driver to stop to, to slow down. The brakes wouldn't do it. And so, you know, his friends started shouting, what's, what's going to happen? And the driver realized he could, wasn't going to be able to stop. And there was just a few seconds left. And so the driver opened the door and jumped out of the bus. <laughs> and so nobody was driving. And so Tulsi ran to the front and he's you know, not many people can drive there in India either. I mean, because even Tulsi didn't have his own car, you know, so, so he, especially in these villages, nobody knows how to drive. So he was the only person on the bus that knew how to drive. So he ran forward, jumped in the seat and there's only a few seconds left until they go off this cliff. And so he just uh, said he had it in his mind. He right away knew what he had to do. He yanked, the steering wheel so hard that the bus tried to turn too quickly and it flipped itself over on the side and it slid down towards the end and stopped before going over the cliff. And um, uh, it was interesting because he, uh, so he saved all of those people um, and he had these newspaper articles and stuff too, which I put on the video where, because it was a big story, you know, they saved all these people and uh, they show pictures of the bus and the cliff and him getting these awards from their local governor and all of these things for his bravery. And uh, so it, 
that's what's interesting about trips is, I mean, literally every person, it could be the elevator person, the cook, uh, people we meet. And I just, so I just talk to them about their lives and about um, what they think about their religions, their views, the politics, the history of the area. And uh, because we're artists, you just get to meet interesting people. We met the, you know, the Maharana there, who, you know, was with the historical ruler of, still lives in the palace, although he gave up his power to, um, you know, to the government when they became independent. Um, but all the different people. So as the simplest people on the street to, um, you know, you know, famous people or farmers. And so I, I just love that. And so all, lots of those things, not every single one of them, there's way more stories than I can, but they work their <laughs> way into my stories and then into my paintings. And, um, you know, I, I just, it's almost like going and taking a class each trip because you meet so many people, you talk about so many issues you haven't thought about and their religions. And I always um, read about their religion and read their books and read the histories uh, before and after I go. And uh, so, yeah, I, I find it. And so I try to put a lot of those things go into my stories that there's the actual plot, but then a lot of it is discussions between people and about their histories. And most of that comes from the experiences of, of these trips. Right. Yes. It sounds great. I mean, I can remember I haven't traveled nearly as much as you have. And, and to to me, they're exotic, but not as exotic as you know, like India or and I think you've been to Africa as well and mm-hmm. a, a number yeah. of other places. But any time that I travel overseas, um, I went to Paris. We biked through a little it was one of the poorest, if there is such a thing, poorest thing, poorest little um, province, I guess you could say, inside inside. France. It was called the Lot Valley. Mm-hmm. And we were biking through there. It was very agricultural. And so the the folks there didn't speak a lot of English, unlike in Paris, um, where maybe mm-hmm. they're choosing not to speak English. But if you, you know, if you're sweet <laughs> and kind, they don't they don't mind. But um, it, it was it was really interesting going through that and experiencing a, on a bicycle um, and, you know, walking into a restaurant and there's this language barrier so do you find that there is a language barrier or or do you find a way to communicate or do you have guides that do a lot of translation for you when you're in these countries or do you wing it (laughs) oh well it it all depends where you're at like did you say the loire valley you were at no lot l-o-t Oh, lot. Okay, we've been to the Loire Valley, and and it was uh, it was similar where you go to these villages and things. And uh, yeah, but yeah, on trips like certainly in um, India, there are a couple people who will speak English, but there's not many uh, right. who do. Um, they've got they've got about a hundred languages there in the in the country, mm-hmm. and um, Hindi is their official language, but still not everybody speaks speaks Hindi. So we almost always on those sorts of trips or Nepal or or Africa, we hire uh, either a translator or a guide or a driver will be our, like in this one, our driver was our translator. Mm. Um, and uh, when we've gone to Africa and we, you know, we'll trek into where where people, traditional people are living to. Um, so sometimes we'll be camping and working our way into the, um, the to tribal areas where there's no roads or electricity. So we'll hire people from that tribe, uh, par- both because um, they can translate for us, but also because they know everybody. Um, you know, like on this trip, having Tulsi as a driver, he was wonderful. He 
knew everybody. Everybody knew him. You know, we <laughs> came to realize too, even people who didn't know him knew him because of that Excellent, thing that he'd yeah. done the year before. It was so interesting. Hmm. You know, they're all like, oh, you're the guy from the newspaper who saved all those people. <laughs> and uh, so we hire local people as our guide. Now, if we don't have an official guide uh, in some places, a lot of times you just hire somebody who speaks English. So if I go into some, you know, um, uh, slum type area or whatever, or or out of the way place, it's interesting because usually somebody young who is learning English, everybody's always excited to come and talk to you. Right. And so I'll say, hey, why don't I hire you to be my translator uh, for the day? And you can you can you can talk to people then and tell them that I'd like them to sit for a painting. Uh, and so, you know, so you don't necessarily have to have uh, planned it way in advance. Sometimes you do have these planned ahead, but other times you just find, usually people will find you. Um, sometimes they're just street kids who, you know, are wanting to be hired as guides or want to talk to you. And a lot of them have learned English and many other languages just from being on the street. And um, so, yeah, I like to, I like to hire people. Uh, that can translate so that I can, you know, um, talk to people and, you know, about things and, and learn their stories and have mm -hmm. discussions. And, uh, you know, and even those those people who are the translators usually have fascinating stories as well. So, so yeah, that's, that's how I do it. Now, when you go into a place, usually it can be very weird, especially in some places where they don't ever see tourists. You have two different reactions. It depends <laughs> where you're at. Like when we're in Tibet, and we, we drove in from China and drove across the whole country just on our own. And um, a lot of times when we would go, we wanted to paint some of the, the yak herding peoples. And um, so when you drive out onto the steps and find people, a lot of people would be terrified and they would run into their tents, you know, and because they think you're the government because the government was rounding people up and forcibly moving them into these villages. Mm -hmm. um, so what would help is if you found one person that, that, that you could, your translator could talk to um we'd have them sit and i would do a drawing of them or a mm -hmm. painting and once you start doing that and this is the same in africa and in so many different countries in nepal once you start doing drawing from your sketchbook people are so interested and people will a couple of people will start to come out usually kids first they'll start to watch you and then they'll say oh they're artists they're drawing or whatever and then everybody will come and they'll like they love to watch mm -hmm. and so that breaks the ice a great deal when you're traveling and, and that's the same in France or anywhere. I mean, right. we're in France and, and Italy and these other countries, these small places, uh, um, you know, when you're sitting there painting, God, people are so interested and they're also very um, excited that you are, it's like they feel honored that you like what their village looks like or whenever I'm doing somebody's boat or something like that, or their cow or whatever, the person who owns that will run over and they're just so proud that you're painting their boat or whatever it is that you're painting and and so that changes the dynamic yeah like if, say we were just photographers or if we were just coming in to take pictures that's a different dynamic and we do that sometimes but it's never if you have the time and you can do some sketches and things and see people are like okay i see what the person's doing because if you just come in to take photos for five minutes and leave people don't really understand or even if they're okay with it and they say okay you take pictures for 15 minutes and then they're kind of like, especially if it's a village and, you know, some remote place. Like, okay, fine. You know, you've taken your pictures, please leave. Mm -hmm. But if you're drawing or painting, you're like, okay, we understand what they're doing. And then they go back and they go back doing their own thing. And so then while you're painting, you can take breaks and take some pictures. Oh my God, people are bringing cows in. 
or they're doing this or that, something really interesting will happen. And you can just spend, you know, the whole day or several days there. And the same with the Himba people in uh, Namibia. Um, we spent a couple of days with them. It would have been very awkward if we were just coming there to take photographs. But people loved watching the pictures. In fact, when they'd have people come from other villages, they would want us to go through our whole sketch pad to show all the drawings that we'd done of everybody. And people would laugh and they'd point to who we were. You know, like, I can tell that's this person or that's that person. So, so yeah, that's that's the difference about it is it uh, it it breaks down the barriers. It's kind of a universal language. People can understand what you're doing, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's interesting. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that kind of segues, uh, segues into this whole concept of visual storytelling. And it's kind of like, you know, whether you're doing a landscape or a person, sometimes I think visual storytelling is, is somewhat easier if you're doing a, a painting a person because their dress, for example, can tell you a lot, their facial expression and things like that. But even you know, in landscape, there's gestures to, to, that you would need to put into a landscape that would draw upon a certain feeling or colors or however you want to say it. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you know, we sit there and we talk about visual storytelling, both in our writing and in our um, painting. So how is it that you determine what you're going to paint and how, how do you go through, I know this is like, could be really hard to, to go through that process, but how do you determine, do you do it before you actually start painting your painting or, or sketching your drawing? How, is the story there and you're trying to tell it or are you making up the story as you go along? Are these questions making any it's sense? Definitely, <laughs> it's definitely, oh, you know, that's a very good question. It's a, uh, it's a combination of a lot of things. You know, when you go on a trip, for example, this last trip, you know, you, you hear stories from people, you know, and like some stories are better told visually and some are better told through writing or through film or through whatever, whatever their other medium. Mm -hmm. So um, usually when I'm, when I'm traveling, I'll see certain things. Like, oh my God, that's so beautiful or so interesting. Um, and so I'll take photographs, I'll do sketches, or I'll get the person to pose for me. It's not something that that particular story is a visual story. It's not something that I could, you know, tell thoroughly in my writing. Right. Now, other stories, when you meet people and you hear their stories and you talk to them and it's just interesting issues and stuff about their lives, those aren't something that you can convey through the painting. Um, and so those may work their way into a story. Uh, that you write about, um, or, you know, sometimes when I'm filming documentaries, uh, I'll, I'll see some interesting issue and I'll make a documentary about it. Um, so that's another way to tell the story. Certainly when I am deciding to do a painting, there's a, there's a lot of different types of paintings and ways I go about it. Sometimes I have an idea in my head beforehand. Mm -hmm. This is rare for me and I'll hire people to, Kind of portray the um you know the, the scene i'm going to do that i did with a few of the sketches that i'm planning to do some paintings from from nahal the the first novel that i did so i did those few drawings and that when i was in scottsdale i was hiring models there while she was teaching a workshop and i had some of the models pose in scenes i kind of sketched out the ideas of of, of some scenes that i'd like to do from my story mm -hmm. and so they posed uh and i lit them 
the way that it would be with with uh, Ganesh riding the motorcycle or whatever. Uh, most of those I haven't done yet. I'm planning to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way to do it. Uh, and that I don't do as often in my paintings. My my paintings tend to be a little bit more documentary-like, where I like to go out and get my inspiration from things that I see and come across. A lot of times they're a surprise. Or I might know that there's an interesting event. Like we, uh, for several of the days while we were in Udapur, there was a uh, festival. And so I knew those three days I would be taking photographs. And so I knew that I wanted to paint the festival probably, but I didn't really know specifically what. And so I just took photographs. And now I've got some incredible ideas for paintings from that. So that's usually the way for me is I may hire a model or something, but I don't have a real specific idea. I kind of just go to an interesting place with them and do sketches or set them up and do the painting. Uh, now, once I've got all my photo references from India, now I'm looking through them and I'm, I've done a couple from India from my photos now that we're home. And uh, and so I just look through the photographs and I kind of think of ones that I think, oh, I'd like to do a painting and I've kind of put them in a folder. And that'll change. In a few years, I'll look through them again and I'll see different pictures. I'll think, wow, why didn't I pick this one or that one? Mm-hmm. And then I will do at least the ones I've been doing now. I've been doing this a lot more often is I have been doing a charcoal drawing first, just a sketch to figure out exactly, you know, what the composition that I'm going to do, if I'm going to use several pictures. And then sometimes I'll do a color study as well. I've done that for the last two. The one I started this morning is of a, of a, of a girl, a little girl. We went to this temple. Her and her sisters were just standing around there, you know, kind of hoping somebody might want to pay him to take a picture or whatever they were in school and that day was off from school and so but they were just incredible so we're like Sue and I and Sue Chichar were like oh well, we're gonna hire you we'll just hire you for like an hour and we'll take pictures of you guys in the temple so we did that and there were these crows that were hanging out around it and so I'm I did a sketch this morning a pencil drawing to figure out I want to have I'm having the one girl with a crow on her head and mm-hmm. um, so I'm just combining the two pictures together and um you know so so that's it's all it's all different ways like that it's it's uh you know it's but but my paintings tend to be a little bit more documentary i tend to paint um the people i see and things that i kind of inspired by um sometimes we'll set a model up uh but you most of my paintings are are kind of you know i get the inspiration when i go out there and the ideas and things from people things people are already kind of doing so right yeah does that yeah. make sense yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it does to me. So it's really kind of interesting because I, I teach um, down at an art center here where I live. And I always love when my students come in and they've got four different photos that they've taken. And it's like, and I want to put this here and I want to put this over here and I'm going to put this here. And they're all different perspectives and they're different mm-hmm. sizes. So I, you know, right. So naturally, what our first comment would be is, well, you need to sketch it out so that you get everything in the right proportions and, you know, it doesn't look. Mm-hmm. So it was really good to hear you say that, you know, you have these pictures and you're, you sketch this out before well, you actually transfer one other, it. One other tip, one other tip that's probably very good for people to keep in mind. Um, when you're photographing things to do paintings from, you're photographing a little differently. Right. So when I was in, like, like I had, I had, done a drawing and a color study and I sketched out a bigger painting from Africa before before we came back and I used about four or five different photographs for that it's of the Himba people dancing 
And I'll do the same thing. I've done the same thing with powwow paintings. And I've got ones from that, from that festival too. When you know you're going to do multiple ones, it's important to find one spot and stay, stay there for a while in the exact same place. Um, sometimes I'll have a tripod. Other times I'll just be holding it. But I'll, one, one viewpoint as people are moving or dancing so that the, the, the um, perspective and the lighting and everything matches and you've got several different pictures to um, choose from. Uh, that's very important when you're trying to take pictures for a painting. So I would do that when I was taking pictures of the festival. I would find a spot, I'd either crouch down, say I want to have the arches behind people as they're streaming in, there are thousands of people. And uh, the women were carrying these um, dolls on their heads um, mm -hmm. of, of different gods and goddesses. And um, uh, so then I would just take a whole bunch of, I would take a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of pictures, you know, for like five minutes or so, so many people were going by. And then I would move to a different spot, try more of a backlit and, and take a whole bunch of pictures from there. As people were moving this way, I can choose different mm -hmm. people to put in the painting because I've seen people try to combine photos from photographs that, you know, if you stand up and take one here and then you move even a little bit over here, the lighting's wrong and they, they usually don't work very well. Um, so that's, that's a very important, uh, thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's frustrating because they always sit there. Well, no, that's why I brought it in because I know that you could, you know, like fix all that. And I'm like, I wasn't there. Right. So, right. so yeah, so it's kind of, it's well, kind of, even if you were there, it's too hard to make up lighting and perspective like that. You, you have to think ahead, uh, doing, doing paintings that are especially bigger ones with a lot of people that you use many photographs. It's all about planning, and that planning starts when you're gathering your references. If you don't have the proper references, um, it's it's better not to, to not to try it, not to do it, because you're you're going to put so much time and effort into this, and it's just going to be frustrating. You're already, even with really good references, it's going to be a challenge. But you know that's the big difference between a lot of the really great artists that I see is they put so much planning and things into it. In fact, I'd seen uh, Jeremy Lipkin gave a really good um, talk at the Autry show this year mm -hmm. at the Autry Museum. Mm -hmm. And he showed um, slideshows of his uh, pencil studies and charcoal studies he did, uh, of, of several paintings. He did then the charcoal study and then he did the color study and then the big painting. You know, and somebody asked him, well, do, do you know, how do you deal with those, those unplanned things that are just problems in the painting? And he's like, well, he goes, I deal with those in my, my, my drawings and the color study, you know, and, and you'll run across those things and then you keep working on them. They're small. So by the time I get to the big painting, I, I really have thought it all out. So I don't have, that's the whole point is, so I don't have those surprises happen when I, you know, on a whole big section trying to redo it is, so that, that's, that's, that's a very important thing to, um, you know, to keep in mind is, is planning, yeah. planning things out. Yeah, that's, and it's funny, it's like over the years, you start to realize that, you know, especially mm -hmm. if you go to different workshops and, and, you know, watch master artists paint and things like that, you know, before they put their first brushstroke down, there's all of this work that you may not have seen because they're planning their demos and things prior to right. that. But, um, you know, if you do have that opportunity, I mean, just ask them how long it took them to to plan out what they were going to demo, for example, because I think you'd right. be surprised about that's, how many times they do do that. They do spend a lot of time there. Yeah. And that's a difficulty about a workshop. When mm -hmm. you know, we teach a workshop, you're usually doing a three hour painting as a demo. So you're talking about technical things, but 
Right. I mean, that's what's nice about having the um, the art videos. You know, we have some of the online art videos, and um, that's nice because then you can kind of show uh, more stages, something that you might spend weeks on, and how you planned it out, and 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 that sort of thing. Uh, because in it's the nature of a workshop, you can't show how you were doing a painting that would take several weeks. Right. Um, so that's 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 something I think that that is a later thing to learn because when you're just struggling with the basics, mm-hmm. you know, getting color and value and drawing, you know, you're not really ready to think about how would I compose 20 people life size in <laughs> from many photographs. Right. But that is an important thing. Once you try and start doing that, it is, it is a whole different group of skills. Yeah. And when I teach, I always try to get them to spend more time before they get to the point of adding color, you know, so like, We'll spend some time, you know, we'll talk about drawing and then we'll talk about um, value study and I'll have them paint, you know, on a grayscale and so that they can figure out some things. And we go through each step along the way. It's like, okay, now let's talk about perspective or let's talk about atmosphere and how things look, you know, fuzzy far away and they're lighter in value. And, you know, we go through all of those those conversations and you could tell you it's like they're nodding off, you know. And it's like, no, yeah. no, this well, is important. This I, is I important. Those, I had those same, <laughs> yeah, I had those same issues when I was there. Sometimes you're not ready to learn, you know, certain things. You're just struggling with one thing at a time. And so it's, it's, uh, it was interesting. You know, what's funny in India was, um, you know, I was painting out in this, in this square uh, right next to the water in Udaipur. And it was the funniest. I mean, so many people would want to watch. And so people, people watch and it was, it was fun. You know, and you're kind of a, you know, curiosity since we're from the United States. So people would want to have, you know, their pictures with us in the background. But it was really funny. I was painting in this, this kind of, you know, out of the way place. And a couple, a young couple came up to me and said, are you Scott Burdick? Um, they're from India. And I was like, yeah, I was so surprised. <laughs> and he said, oh, we recognize you because we're, we're graphic artists. But we, um, when we were in art school, our teacher had downloaded uh, your videos, uh, your instructional videos. So we all watched them. And so we recognized you. We were like, ask, we, were, we saw you and we were like, doesn't that look like Scott Burdick? It was so funny. So I was like, that was really a first. You're famous. <laughs> it just shows how the internet is just changing things. It was really interesting how, how many great artists that we saw in India and that we, that we met there and um, you know, how familiar they were with everybody um, that we knew from, yeah. you know, see, seeing them, their work on the internet, which was different than when we were there the first time. It was so long ago, the internet was starting and some people knew of our work, but it was if they had seen art magazines or things or if they were artists, but but now it's changed completely. So yeah, yeah. it's a smaller world. Yeah, it was, it's another thing I think that's always interesting too, as far as revisiting when I'm teaching us. I have a brand new student who just decided, you know, hey, I'm retired. I'm just going to start, I'm going to learn how to paint. And he's, he's really, really good because he, you know, he'll walk in and he's like, I don't know anything. You have to teach me everything. I'm like, okay, but you have to listen to me, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm like, I don't want you to paint like me, but you have to listen to the technique and, and stuff like that. So, and then, you know, like I'm, so I'm taking him through some things that are slower and some of my students who have been my students for a while. Um, so we have, you know, very different conversations about where they are in their process and their journey. But then I, you know, I'm teaching Jack this whole, you know, this same process more or less, 
But all of a sudden, a couple of my students that are older, you know, that I don't mean older, but have been in painting longer, like, oh, wait, you didn't tell me that. I'm like, yes, I did. You just didn't listen. <laughs> you know? So we have this whole, so all of a sudden this whole, like, you know, yeah. light bulb goes off. And then all of a sudden you see them applying that same technique or, or something, you know, and it's like, right. I, I need to try that, you know? So, I mean, it even goes to show that even when you're starting out, or if you have been painting for five or 10 years or whatever, hearing some of those basic things again means something mm -hmm. different at that point in time. So, right. you know, it's a, yeah. So it's just so cool. Like I can imagine that every time that you go to another country or another place, it's almost like relearning everything again. It's just a totally different yeah. experience. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I love that. I, I love getting inspiration. And a lot of times if we're home too long, I'll be working in the studio and things and I'll just start to get bored. You know, I won't have the inspiration and going on a trip like this, I was getting like that before we went. And uh, now I'm back and I'm so, you know, excited about, um, you know, about painting. And I've been writing down some of the stories of people that I've, I've, I've heard and stuff. And that's kind of always been my process since I've always, um, you know, I've always written since high school. Well, before that, since, you know, I was a kid, I'd always liked writing and painting. And so it's always been kind of a combination of the two is uh, writing down the stories or, you know, thinking about the things that we have talked about and then doing the paintings of the people. And when I do the paintings of the people, it, it just, you know, it, it's just so much more inspiring. Is that with you? I mean, I loved your book. I read your, well, I listened to the audio book of your, of your book and, um, I, I liked uh, a lot of your descriptions and your kind of uh, discussions uh, between people. And, and, and did it feel the same as painting to you? Well, that's the weird thing is like you, I have always written. Um, I started out, I, one of my favorite things to tell people when they're like, I can't understand how you can be a writer and a painter is like, well, you have to understand when my mom gave me crayons, I wasn't coloring. I was writing gibberish. Mm -hmm. I was just act like I would write and it just, you know, I'd have break and squiggles and stuff, you know, so I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and then life kind of took over, started working at Procter and Gamble and, um, worked there for 26 years. And there's not a lot of time when you're being paid by somebody else for 40 hours a week, which actually was more like 60 right. hours a week. You know, there's not a lot of time for creativity except for creativity around the job you're in. So if you're lucky to have that, that's, that's great. I didn't really, I, my creativity was totally different than what P&G wanted me to be creative mm -hmm. in. Um, so, right, um, right. you know, I, I wrote like, you know, when I was on break or maybe at lunch or, you know, maybe on a weekend, um, I, I would do like weekend writing things where I would probably, where most people would recharge on the weekend and sleep a lot. I was awake a lot in writing. Um, so by the time the blind influence came along, um, I probably had, over a foot of handwritten scenes that I went back and mm -hmm. and did this, but um, yeah, I always it, it painting came later. Painting was my two-hour escape on um, you know Thursday night at the art center that I'm actually teaching at now um, is where I actually began to paint, and then um, some things that I, I accomplished everything that I really thought I would ever accomplish at Procter and Gamble. One of them being that I was promoted to manage to management without going back to college to get a degree. Cause I started there right when I was 18 
And my whole thing, they they kept saying to me, you know, Linda, go back to college. Um, you know, we're going to, we want to promote you to management, but we can't do it without a college degree. And I kept telling them, if I'm going to go back to college, it's not going to be for engineering. It's going to be for film directing or, you know, movie mm -hmm. creation or <laughs> screenwriting or something. Right. It's not going to be, right. it's not going to be engineering. So it was just kind of funny. And I just decided, well, I need to do, you know, I'm dying inside. I just need to do something creative. So I just signed up for this art class at um, the art center and started that way. Um, they ended up promoting me without a college degree, which they probably only done about five or six times in the whole company's career. And, um, mm. and then I, I was like, okay, well that got that accomplished. I can leave now. <laughs> so I did. Yeah, that <laughs> so, is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So when I, when I left, I think, I think everybody should do that. You know, it's like people talk themselves out of doing it because they think, oh, you know, I'm, I don't have time to become, you know, famous or the best of the best, but you learn so much and, and you'll bring a different perspective, perspective to it from your experience, probably for you writing and stuff and painting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, your absolutely. Your time at Parker and Gamble probably, you know, makes you the unique artist and writer than someone else who hasn't had that experience. Yeah, well, right. And it's interesting because a lot of the times I will take a more, um, because I, I worked in a kind of like system development, computer system development and things like that. So I had to write current best approaches all the time, um, mm -hmm. which are just real technical sheets of paper of this is how you do this, this is how you do that. Um, so when I started, working with Kevin McPherson and we started um, Artist Mentors Online, I was the one that was sitting behind Kevin going, why did you do that? And how did you do it? Mm -hmm. And really, you know, started making him peel back in a conscious way because subconsciously he knew why he was doing it. You know, it's, but he, right. to, to sit there, and I'm sure it's the same with you, you know, to sit there and verbalize why you decided to put that little piece of green in there. <laughs> or something you, you yeah. know you know subconsciously why you're doing it and, it and a lot of times consciously it comes out with well just because I like it there but there's a you mm -hmm. know I was really forcing the people that I teach and the people that I've worked with um, in the art industry I really forced them to come back and go no 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 there's something different there's a technical reason why you did that so let's talk about that right. and you know we start talking that technicals and that's what I bring from PNG is that whole technical piece and um, of course at PNG to keep your projects alive, you had to market them to your management all the time. So even if you're right. not in marketing, you're learning marketing, how you get them to give you the right amount of money for your budget and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, you know, all of well, that. You know, that's, that's what, I think it's a, a good thing, like what you're talking about as far as, um, you know, deciding why you're doing things. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing about art in general is, uh, in writing, I think, when you become a painter, and I see this when I teach, and I, I, I learned this myself when I was in school, um, you know, I thought I was seeing things the way they really were. Um, and then when I started drawing in life drawing, I had life drawing for three years before I started painting, I started to realize I'm not actually seeing uh, things the way they really are. Because when I try to draw a three quarter, for example, I start to turn it and I start to I, I unconsciously make it straight on. Everybody mm -hmm. does that. They start to the farther away part of the face in three quarter, all beginners and, and even intermediate. And even for me, when I'm not really paying attention and looking at it, analyzing it, 
you start to stretch out the further away side, you start to straighten the nose. If you're looking up at the model, you'll lengthen the nose so that it's straight on. Because we have these preconceived ideas of what things look like. You see that when people draw trees or mountains and they're just making them very regular. They're not actually seeing the the the, the true shapes and colors of things. Right. And so that as an artist, you, you learn that. Uh, and that's more what I try to teach people is is how to actually see things the way they really are, these tricks that we use to turn off the filter in our mind. Right. And when I write, I find, and that's why I think even if you're not going to become a professional artist, even people I know who who paint with us, who draw with us, who have just started, or doctors or whatever, and as they start to learn those things, they really start to look at the world in a different way. Absolutely. And I feel that way with, with writing, too. Uh, and it's a slightly different way, but we have our own biases that we have about how things are in the world. Mm-hmm. And when you actually start talking to people, uh, especially if you're thinking about them as you, know, you start to think more about, like, I want to write a story about something or thinking about India, you're not necessarily trying to convince them of things, but you're trying to understand it and see it more. And you start to have your own um, biases challenged. Mm-hmm. And so many trips I go on things thinking one thing that I, you know, I've read a lot about a particular thing. And then you talk to people and you realize a whole other truth and reason and subtleties behind these things. And then when, then it gets even more when I actually will start to write. I mean, I've written like five or six novels. I've only published the two. Eventually I'll put others into shape and start publishing them when I have time. But, but even, even if I don't publish them, the fact of sitting down and writing where they have a lot of my stories have these, you know, these, these bigger ideas mm-hmm. in them that people are talking to and discussing. But even after having talked to people and read a lot about stuff, when I start to write it, and I, in all my stories, I have multiple characters. Like in um, The Immortality Contract, I have the Muslim, the Christian, and the atheist viewpoint. And I try to really present each one equally from their points of view. And so that as they have these discussions, or like in Nahala, when I'll have people have discussions about, you know, morality or, you know, what is torture and trying to define these things or these, these philosophical arguments that they'll have, you know, woven through the story. Oftentimes when I actually say, okay, let me make the best argument I can for, say, creationism or something. And then I really talk to people and then I try and write it from that point of view. I think like uh, so many times I've written those things. That was a good example. Then I was like, okay, I can see, I can see that point of view. I can see if, if they're right about this, then these things do follow. And so having the argument between characters, and if you really try and honestly have both sides, it's amazing how much more complicated it gets. And then you tend to learn a lot of things. And I was very happy. There was a, a book club that did, um, that did there's a couple book clubs that just did the immortality contract and I one of them uh, I talked to and it was fascinating because they had people who were very, uh, a very uh, born again Christian and they had ones that were uh, not religious at all mm-hmm. and uh, and so they it was interesting because they said we were kind of nervous about this book but some people brought this book to us and everybody was excited to read it when they read the blurb about what it was about. And uh, they said, we were kind of nervous, though, because we've done this book club for a couple of years, and people haven't actually discussed their different viewpoints on religion or politics. And this one had a lot of religious and po- political ideas in it. And But they said uh, everybody liked it, and 
they all thought their viewpoint was represented just the way they would have liked to have put it. In fact, he said, she said, one of the Christians said, that was the best way of explaining my viewpoint. I'm actually going to use this for some of my relatives. And then uh, the people on the other side felt the same. And so they, it led to, uh, you know, a discussion between them. And they said it was, uh, so that was, I was, I was happy about that. And, uh, but I wanted to tell them too. Yeah. I mean, you all, cause that's what the one person said who did, did the book club. They said they weren't religious, but they, had never really understood their friend who had this very religious viewpoint. And they said after reading the book, they really did understand it more and um, vice versa. The religious person saw the point of view of the more scientific uh, kind of skeptic viewpoint. And um, so to me, that's what books are about, but it's also what paintings are about. You know, so many, I mean, so many times people will say, God, I see India in a different way now, having seen your posts from the trip. And I was kind of afraid of it. And, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's neat to show, you know, people, you know, that, you know, what, what something's really like and challenge these stereotypes that maybe that's all we see on the news is, you know, uh, <laughs> if you go to a Muslim country or something, that how scary it looks. And really, it's, it's not that way. Yeah. Anyways, those are, those are what I go for in, in, in the stories and the paintings, you know, I'm, I'm most excited when, 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 somebody from that culture feels like I've captured it or somebody from that viewpoint feels like they have. And, and then somebody else has seen it from a different point of view. Yeah. It's, I think it's interesting um, because um, you and I have had conversations prior to this as well. Um, you know, religious, political, whatever those, those conversations that are taboo that you're not supposed to talk about, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in the company or whatever. But yeah, I mean, when I read Nahala, I was sitting there thinking the whole time, it's like, oh my gosh, the research that you must have done. Of course, a lot of it, you, you've talked to people in the country and things like that, but you do, I mean, it's not, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this so it doesn't sound judgmental because it, it isn't judgmental. What you're not doing is, you know, trying to convince everybody to think like you. What you're doing is presenting arguments and both sides of them or or right. discrepancies and both sides of them if you don't want to use you know words that could get you in trouble you know and, and trying to well, educate, yeah educate you know and yeah i don't like people who just preach and have one side it's like exactly i don't want to tell people how they should think i want to tell people here's some different thoughts and then you you think you know you mm -hmm. you take it even further you know and uh and if you um, want to dismiss yeah, it after I, you I, read it it's fine you know that's you that's you know yeah so yeah, so right. well, and I think my my biggest my my largest theme probably in 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 both stories and the other ones that I haven't even published is things are more complicated than yes. both sides would like to make you think. Mm -hmm. You know, so like in in the immortality contract, you know, it's about people becoming immortal and being given the choice: will you give up, you know, your chance at heaven or hell to have an immortal life here, or or do you believe that enough to do that? And the scientist feels absolutely certain that there is no heaven or hell. And uh, the uh, religious, his granddaughter, Alma, is absolutely certain that there is a heaven. She's had a near-death experience and seen it. Um, so that's her first po point of view. Now, whichever, in the beginning of the story, probably whichever side you're on, you're thinking that person's right. Uh -huh. And then as the story goes, both their viewpoints get challenged by different, different things. Um, they may not change their view, but they, through the story, realize some things that they thought weren't true. 
the mm-hmm. scientist in a big way and little ways for the for the for the Muslim and for the Christian as well. And so so you know, I think that's the thing. And then there was the same with Nahala, is there was no absolute answer. But some people got mad at me at <laughs> Nahala at the end of it. There were there I heard, it was funny too because I heard from both uh atheists and from um uh, uh Christians both who said, oh, I love the book all the way through the end, but I expected you to like come down on one side and like settle the argument at the end because I, I don't want to give anything away, but at the end okay. there's, a, there's a way that the character could know the absolute tr- truth. The character himself comes to the knowledge of, of absolute truth mm-hmm. of, of, of all things that happen. But, um, but I don't say what they found because I don't know absolute truth. So for me to actually write it in there, but the idea that you know there is a truth—that's what our, our our whole job is—is is to try and get to it. But it's not as obvious as as either side would make you you know want to believe. So that's right. that's what I love writing things is is you know in fact I think it's why I enjoy having conversations. I have several friends of mine who are extremely different viewpoint of me politically um, and uh, you know religion wise and and I always have and I never get into arguments with anybody and we have long conversations on these painting trips in the Sierras and these pack trips and stuff. And when I see them and we never get angry, it's just a discussion, you know, maybe because I'm not trying to convince them, you know, I, I'm just giving them my viewpoints and I'm interested in their viewpoints. And so that's the way I write those stories. I, I just find it fascinating. So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting yeah. too, because you say you're not trying to have an argument and I know, I mean, just hearing your voice, you, you don't sound like you would be somebody who is, going out and, and actually looking for an argument, you're looking to understand. I know that. And and mainly because we have conversations and you've never put me, you know, in a position where we were arguing or, or anything. You've listened very politely and presented other, you know, alternatives, if you will. And I appreciate that, too, right. because I think we're here to learn, you know, and, and I think yeah. where, where you end up reading with like, just let's just use social media for example you read something and then all of a sudden somebody takes an offense to it because the voice in their head isn't where you are number one you know not you personally but you as all of us you know we're not I may post something somebody may get angry at it and it's like why did they react that way you know and it's because they didn't they didn't seek to understand they just basically put their judgment right on it <laughs> and that's well, wrong. you know you it, it's, <laughs> it's not it's not that i i definitely have opinions on right. things i definitely right. think well, we all do this is the truth and this is wrong from what i've looked at but i also know that uh you know i was brought up very religious mm-hmm. and you know now i'm an atheist so i changed my view once i may change it again i'm <laughs> i also know that i don't you know, I'm limited to the information that I have through my right. eyes and what I've read and everything. So, so it's, it's, there's lots of things. Once you've changed your mind once, you can change it again. But I definitely have my views, you know, and I'll talk to people. Like, I'll talk to people. I have lots of friends who, you know, don't believe that climate change is happening. And so I'll send them articles. I'll, you know, I'll send them the evidence and try and say, you know, this is why I think this is, a, is an issue, um, you know. I could be wrong on this, but I don't think so because of this. And then they'll send me things back. Now, sometimes when I post things like that um, about religion or politics or any of that, I will definitely get some some angry messages <laughs> back. But for the most most point, people usually will write and say, 
it's really nice to see a respectful conversation. And sometimes when people get yes. really um, uh, rude, I'll, I'll kick them off the discussion. Now, there are times when people get very angry at me. Like when I did the um, one thing I feel very strong about is separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. And so I made that documentary uh, in God we trust um, about the town near where we live, King, North Carolina. Right. And that led to a lawsuit um, by Americans United because um, as Barry Lynn told me, he said, you know, we've never had uh, the evidence that you documented in this, you know, about all the threats and the way they were trying to say this is a public forum, but behind the scenes, they were threatening everybody to be lose their job and all this stuff. So that film, it's about religion and it's about that. And it led to the lawsuit. And then last, I guess a year and a half ago, it was uh, settled. Uh, well, the, the town gave in because they, you know, they, they were sued uh, for a dollar, but they'd have to pay their insurance company would have to pay the, the uh, cost of America's United. They lost and they, they, they lost, they gave in because it was proved of all the things that they were doing and, and they had to pay $500,000. The, their insurance company had to pay $500,000 to um, Americans United and, they had to take the Christian flag down and all of the Christian symbols that they had filled the, um, you know, the, the town's uh, park, their central park and the veterans memorial with. And so they lost and, you know, people were very angry and had all these things. And even before that, you know, so I did get all kinds of threats and, um, you know, people posting <laughs> our address and, you know, and, 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 but there were all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't in that issue, in that, instance you know if you don't stand up and say you know when i saw people being threatened and you know they went around to all the businesses and told them if you don't put the christian flag up if you you if you don't believe that christianity should be the official country if you're of a different religion you should leave should leave town um you know threatening people over the boycott of them if they didn't you know support the city's right to promote christianity with taxpayer dollars it was like it was just crazy and so i was like i can't I can't. So that's probably the one thing that got people so angry at, at me, um, you know, um, but you know, that you can't help it. I mean, that's some, some things are just beyond, you know, I mean, right, beyond right. argument, you know, I can't, I don't see that there's two sides to saying, you know, people shouldn't, you know, separate religion and government, you know, and, and I mean, I see that in, in countries that I go to, right. I saw, I've seen that in Muslim countries. I in fact, even in India, this last trip, it was fascinating how enmeshed religion was with government. You know, they have all kinds of, you know, things enmeshed. And it's a difficulty because they have Hindu, they have Sikhs, they have, they have uh, Muslims, they have all kinds of things. And there was one of, our, one of our guides that we hired to go to a temple in uh, Mumbai. It was fascinating because he was telling me how he had given up Hinduism and he believed in the Baha'i faith. He's been practicing that for 10 years. And so at some point later, he was telling me all about it and what, why he thought it was the truth and everything. And maybe later in, in the day, I said, oh, how, now how long again have you been? Have you been a Baha'i? And he said, oh, I'm not Baha'i. I'm Hindu and Hindu still. And I said, but you said 10 years ago or however long you, you know, you had completely, you know, changed your view. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, I go to the temple, you know, every week and everything, the Baha'i temple. But. I'm not Baha'i because, you know, in India, you have to go through a government process uh, to apply to switch religions officially. So you can't call yourself Baha'i unless the government has 
has, you know, allowed you to change religions. And I was like, that, that was so <laughs> wild to me. He's like, oh, well, yeah. because religion is so important here. You know, one of our models was a uh, Jespreet. She, her family had been um, uh, um, Jain and her husband was um, uh, Hindu and they met in college. Uh, and so for five years, they fell in love. They were dating and knew they wanted to get married and stuff, but they hid from their families the fact that they were dating, you know, outside their religion because it could be a huge thing. And sometimes there's violence and things, uh, you know, if people are going to get married of different religions. And so it was fascinating and, you know, how they finally, you know, told them and people were upset, but they finally brought them around and, and they got married. So it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. You really, you really see, you know, why our country is so lucky mm-hmm. to have that you know um Absolutely. i mean it's and it's something that you you know for everybody you mm-hmm. know every, whatever religion or non-religion you are it's so so essential you know to have a free society and to be able to you know speak your mind and have that freedom is just i think it's at the core of everything so yeah yeah it, it's kind of interesting because Anyways. when we were in yeah it's <laughs> it, my speech yep <laughs> That's fine. It, but when we were in France, you know, you, you would think, you know, oh, well, that's India or, you know, or that's, you know, yeah. or whatever. You, you kind of think that way. But, you know, that's not really true, because when we were in France, it was really kind of interesting, of course, that, you know, everything is the Notre Dame this and Notre Dame that. But um, we were in Bone uh, in Burgundy uh, area, um, visiting some of the vineyards and things like that. And we happened to be there on a Sunday. And, um, you know, we never would think about anything but we we checked in on saturday saturday i think it was and um oh it was a holy day that's what it was um ascension i think it was so anyway we were um you can tell like i left my catholic behind a long time ago but whatever the holiday holy day was that was on that monday so we checked in on a sunday and um woke up checked in saturday night sunday we woke up the bells were ringing all the way up until noon from the church the little church in town so every hour the bell would toll and Tom looks at me and goes, is that going to happen all day? <laughs> and I just kind of laughed and I said, no, honey, just until the last mass is over. So, and my husband was never Catholic. Mm-hmm. So he, he didn't understand that, that part of it. And I said, that's a call to mass, you know, just like they have the, you know, the Muslim call it that comes over the speakers in mm-hmm. a Muslim city. And he's, yeah. you know, he just kind of sat there and looked at me. My husband's more well-traveled than I am, you know, <laughs> like I'm sitting there going, okay, yeah. you didn't know what that was. So then the, on the holy day, none of the businesses were open. So like the hotel we were right. in was saying, you know, you're going to need to go out and get some food because there's no businesses open tomorrow. Right. And I'm like, right. are you right. going to be here? And they're like, well, yeah, we'll be here. But like the, the restaurants won't be open and the, and you need to go right. out today and get to the store and get, and, and I mean, that just blew me away. I was just like, yeah. you know, and, and they said, you know, that there's one of these things where, you know, like hotels and things like that are things that are kind of more international. And I'm not particularly sure that it would happen actually in Paris because Paris is bigger and more yeah. international, but this little town of bone right. in the middle of yeah. vineyards, you know, that's, that's what they decided to do. And so, yeah, so right. it's, it is kind of interesting you don't realize the, I guess you more or less take them for granted. You could even argue that, that we take a lot of what we have rights to in this country, like the bill of rights, if you just want to get it to that, but you know, how different that is. And, Oh, you know, I'm going to just do a little preaching here as well. Oh, by the way, when you go to a foreign country, your rights don't go with you. 
So, you know, yeah. I, I can't oh, yeah, tell no, you, you how many times I, I, I've seen I mean, Americans I, I, going, but this is my right in the in France or somewhere. Right. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, you don't have a you don't have a right to everything, but some things are 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 human rights. should be universal rights. Right. Right. I do. I do. You know, I'm a very liberal person. Uh, you know, no. kind of a progressive liberal. <laughs> um, and I I totally, but I have lots of great friends who are. Uh, very Republican and very conservative. Yeah, I do and, too. And I can see their viewpoints, and I'm conservative on some things, but there's certain. Sometimes it gets me annoyed when I have people who are very liberal um, say, "Well, you know, it, it, like I, I've criticized, and sometimes when I've written things, you know, say, well, you know, in some of these countries, you know, where women aren't allowed, say, to, you know, go go out." even out of the house without permission or to be accompanied by a man mm-hmm. where they have to cover their whole faces and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not, and some women may want to, that's fine. But, uh, or, you know, they just recently allowed uh, people in Saudi Arabia, women in Saudi Arabia to drive those sorts of things. And people will criticize me for saying that that's, you know, it's like, that's their culture. You know, you shouldn't be criticizing that. And I, I think, I just don't think that that's true. I think that, um, you know, it's like slavery or something, you know, that's not something that, a culture decides that slavery is okay, you mm-hmm. know, or that women can't go to school, you know, or things like that. I think I think that's a universal human right. I think there's certain things that are human rights, and even if you're in another country, you know, it's not that I'm in that country going to try to, you know, free free or protest or you can't you can't do that. But you know, I will, I will write about those things, you know, and some people will get angry and you know say that that's, you know, that's my, you know, imperialist. I'm being like culturally imperialist. It would be different to say, well, everybody should be, you know, you should force everybody to be, you know, my religion or no religion or whatever. Force is different. You know, when you're using force, uh, that's not a cultural preference. It has to be for a good reason. You could use force for somebody, say, nobody can kill, Um, you know, or maybe there's cultural differences on how, how they punish people who, do certain things but um anyways that's that's yeah that's kind of a little bit aside from what you're saying I mean, you, you certainly right. you certainly have to um have to respect other countries you know you know the way they do things it's just you know it's just the way it's done so it's uh you know you take your shoes off when you go into certain holy places even if you don't yeah. believe in that god and if you don't then don't go into it but um yeah but, i mean there's, there's i think there's a respectfulness that needs to to be there i and and i i totally agree with what you were saying about you know saudi arabia don't get me started (laughs) being a woman don't get me started (laughs) so so this kind of thing but you know there's i've been surprised at how many people uh, disagree with that i mean very very uh, um you know uh, educated people that will just say you know that's not our place to talk about that and i just I find that amazing, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so we kind of got off track, but that that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, your writing journey—you said you started it when you were young, and and naturally, you're writing about things that are important to you, that are part of you. And do you find that that happens more on the writing side than it does on the painting side, or? Do you feel like you're doing it both equally? Um, I think they're just different aspects of that. So okay. everything, you know, that I paint is generally things that I see that I come in contact with. I'm, I'm not really an illustrator, so I'm not being given assignments, say, to do 
something from a book that I haven't written. So everybody I paint is, I only work for my own photographs. I only work for my own things that I'm interested. I don't do commissions. So it's really just, uh, it's kind of a journal of my interests, things Mm -hmm. that I see and do. And the writing is like that too. It's just, you know, and and they're not all personal. Uh, A lot of things are taken, some are taken from my personal life. Um, in this last book, The Immortality Contract, there's a lot of things in there that come from my history um, of my family and stuff that I just wove into the main character's story. Um, the the first one, Nahala, uh, the, the main girl whose name is Kayla, um, you know, she starts out, she's, you know, she's crippled. She And I was born with club feet, so I spent a lot of time on crutches as a kid. And then her her spiritual journey is, was my journey through the story, the things that she struggles with and learns. But then it's, you know, it takes place over the next thousand years of history. So it's, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's things I've heard about or just thought about. Um, I've been, you know, so, so it's a combination of all those things. It's my thoughts. It's not necessarily, uh, uh, maybe sometime I'll write a more literal story about an actual event or something that I've, I've done or gone through. But for the most part, I usually use them as kind of jumping off points for these ideas. So it's mm. kind of, but I've always done it. I've always written, I always wanted to be a writer or a painter or a filmmaker. And um, I, I got a scholarship to the academy. So I went there. And then after there, and after a couple of years when I was making a living as a painter, I went back to school uh, while I was still painting and selling paintings to, you know, make a living. I was with Sue. And I went to Columbia College and took film, writing, and photography and um, for three years. And so that's when I just, I got a little more serious and learned a little bit more of the, you know, the technical things. And, you know, and, I, and one of my short stories was published in there um, uh, in, in, a, in a book, uh, an anthology. And so that was kind of nice. And, uh, but yeah, then I just kept writing. So it's, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy doing both as well. And um it's kind of funny. It's just kind of go back with the the three main characters. I call them three main characters, which I know you can't really have three main characters, but um, one wouldn't be complete without the other two uh, is the way that I kind of look mm-hmm. at it. It's that triangle that goes on. And of course, one of them is a politician. And it was amazing to me, everybody's reaction to that particular politician, because I really like Jenkins. And you know, it's like, I, so I'm writing him because I like him and, and everybody just, you know, every, everybody I talk to like at book signings and different things like that, they come up and they go, I don't like that Jenkins guy, man. He's just too sneaky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, so they're going, <laughs> yeah, really? You know? So, so it was really kind of interesting well, that how everybody's reaction it, to him was totally different. It is interesting. Cause yeah, I liked that character a lot and I liked I liked his viewpoint. You know, I, I did the same thing in, in um, my stories. The characters that would be considered the, you know, the the evil characters. It's fun to actually once you start to see their viewpoint. Um, a lot of times, you know, you you can't help but, you know, feel sorry for them or admire them or start to see their viewpoint and say, "Geez, why am I seeing their viewpoint?" And um, a lot of times, the evil characters are the more interesting. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of in general, a lot of times in stories, it's very difficult. I mean, if you think of like Star Wars and you think of Darth Vader and these sorts of characters, uh, it, the really good, good people, Luke Skywalker is great, but he's almost so good that it's not, he's not as 
interesting, say, as Darth Vader or maybe like an in-between character like Han Solo. They, they, they have more complexity, you know, to their characters. It's like we, we, we love to hate them, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, so those characters, you know, if you make them more than just a one-dimensional thing, Usually when you get into their motivations, you start to hopefully see, and the same was with your book, you start to say, okay, I can see, you know, why they're doing this or what their point of view is. You know, I don't want to say exactly why because I give away your story, but it's, uh, yeah, that's yeah. the thing when you have a story like yours, there's, <laughs> there's too many things that can be given away. It's yeah. such a page turner and so many twists. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. But it, it's really, it is fun to watch. And, and it was funny because a lot of the people I have, like you said, I have a lot of conservative friends and, um, it was, it's really kind of funny because, uh, they love the book and, and I just sit there and, and look at them because, you know, the Republicans are kind of taking the fall <laughs> in the book. But as I, you know, they were going, they, one of the things I always said to them, I said, you know, well, my Democrats, some of my Democrats are just as bad as some of my Republicans. Okay. So just, you know, cause that's yeah. kind of like real life, you know, no, we've got our good guys and our bad guys on. So it's really kind of interesting that, um, to hear my Republican friends, my conservative friends talk about my book to other people while I'm in their presence, because it's, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they talk about it is, is really kind of interesting because the way that I'm writing it, the, and maybe this is success. The way that I'm writing it, I would have thought that they would never talk to me again. So, mm, so that right, you know, right. so it was kind of interesting that that they take that. And, and again, that's the thing that talk a little bit about Gabriel and Stefan when when they took the book, and, and I'm sure it was the same when they took Nahala and uh, the Immortality Contract, and you heard that read back and what their interpretations were of each of the characters. Mm-hmm. That was fascinating to me. I mean, I, 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 yeah. the first, the first chapter, the first, you know, day one, part one, whatever you want to call it. And Stefan started reading it and I'm getting chills, you know, goosebumps on my arms, just hearing his voice. And then, you know, when yeah. Gabriel yeah, became amazing. Nicole, I just, just like, oh my gosh. So how, how was that experience with you, with your characters? Yeah, no, it was really cool to have them interpreted and they're just so good readers, you know, and I, I knew their voices already because I, I loved Orson Scott Card and a lot of the very famous um, uh, science fiction writers that they had read books of. I listened to books uh, on tape, uh, both fiction and nonfiction while I paint. So I already knew their voices. And so I was really excited when they wanted to. Uh, they had actually contacted me about um, uh, Nahala um, right out of the blue because um, they'd heard it. I'd posted it on a thing and, and it had been doing it had gone quite high on the um uh the uh chart amazon. things on amazon in the yeah, beginning seller and so, right. they, so i was so amazed that they wanted to do that book and to you know to have it in there um to distribute it as an audiobook so because i knew their i knew who they were i knew their voices so it was really exciting to hear them do it and it's fun because it's it's different than i i heard the voice say in my head you know exactly <laughs> It was just so much, it was so much, um, so much better and so interesting. So, yeah, it's just like the difference between a real professional and, uh, you know, lots of people say, well, why wouldn't you want to read your own book? It's like, you obviously haven't listened to the audiobook because they are just so good at the accents and all the different things. It's just amazing, really, especially Gabrielle and Nahala. She just read the Nahala and uh, 
you know, there's so many different characters in that, so many different voices and accents from different countries. And it was just really interesting to hear, you know, an actual trained, you know, because she's a theater actor and, and right. a movie actor. Yeah. And um, so it's uh, it was really, really kind of neat to, to hear that. Well, it was interesting for me. I don't know about for you because um, your books aren't like a series. I don't think they're two separate. I, I need to read Immortality Contract yet. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mine yeah, are a series. series. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of interesting because I'm writing, I'm in the middle of writing book four. Well, actually, four is mm -hmm. done and it's at my editor. But um, and the, the funny thing is, I, so I have to get going on book five. But anyway, the the interesting thing is, is I was kind of listening to the audiobook um, that Gabrielle and Stefan did, and I'm trying to write, and I said, okay, I have to stop this because their voices were not the voices of my character in my head, and the my characters in my oh, head right. were going, who is that? Yeah. That's not me. You know, yeah. so, so I was like, no, I have to listen to this at a different time. I can't do this when I'm writing it because it is it is different than the voices in my head. And it was fascinating, mm -hmm. the interpretation that they've made uh, of that, which opened me up to right. to understanding that when people are reading my my things, and I'm sure it's the same way with you, people are reading, I think their interpret their interpretations are totally different than what my interpretations are. And right. I'm sitting there, you know, I went through this whole discussion in my head is, am I failing? Am I failing? Because I'm not, you know, and then it's like, no, I don't think you are because I don't, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, I don't want people to think exactly like me. So like a painting, if I right. put a painting in front of somebody, the way that they react to it is going to be different than the way that I react to it. And it's, I think it's exactly the same for a book. Yeah, it is. Yes. It is interesting. We all do bring our own, our own things to it, our own perspectives. And so it's, it's fun to hear. It's fun to hear different people's uh, interpretations. I, the Nahala that had, you know, been very popular uh, for a long time. Now it's, died down and it's more of just kind of a steady sort of sales but uh, and it, it was reviewed got a positive review from a uh, science fiction um, magazine so it had a uh, had a lot then but it was interesting even the reviewer that there when the reviewer reviewed it and 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 liked it and gave it a you know a recommendation to buy which was really really great for the for the book mm -hmm. um, when it came out but it was so interesting because he he was like and I'd even talked to him later he was like you know, the one thing that bothered me was uh, the name of one of the characters, he said, because this reminded me of, uh, it was the name of somebody that I had seen in a soap opera a long time ago that I used to watch. And so I just couldn't get that out of my head, you know, so it was like funny, because it was like, <laughs> I've never, I've never seen this soap opera, I've never seen that soap opera. So it was like, it, it, but it just showed how our biases, you know, mm -hmm. uh, come into play, our different viewpoints. And I think it's the same with paintings. I like to leave a lot of room in the story you know so that like i said i have a lot of these discussions between people about about different philosophical issues and it's neat to to leave room for people to interpret it themselves and not just say this is their answer this is the absolute answer some people may come to my conclusion some people may not but i i i think that's why a lot of times in painting you know sometimes i will do somebody smiling or things like this but most of the time i tend to like to have expressions that are almost totally neutral mm -hmm. and it's fascinating how people depending on the subject and their own you know history of things um, they'll look into it and they'll read into it totally different I have this at every show where people will come up and say about a particular painting wow that person just looks 
so nostalgic right now. I can tell they must be thinking about this or that or this or that. Or there's one of a Native American woman that was on the cover of Southwest Art and, and, and people in the museum were like, and oh, the one, one person would be like, I can see she's thinking of, she's so sad and thinking of all the terrible things that have happened, you know, to the Navajos and stuff. And, and then somebody else would say, I can just see that she's so inspired, looking and happy, looking at these 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 hills and things that her ancestors were and imagining that and it was interesting how everybody <laughs> was bringing a different thing to it and I think that happens with stories and characters you know you you write it and you know you're you have a viewpoint of it and I've heard this from a lot of people because there were things that I left especially in the hollow well also in uh, the immortality contract that I left as questions on why people did things and 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 so many, in fact, there was a part at the end of Nahala that I really questioned whether I should give the absolute, give an absolute answer to, because there were several different possibilities right. of motivations. Yep. And, uh, and I asked a couple people and they said, no, they liked, they liked the fact that I left it up for people to imagine. I do too. A, a lot of people <laughs> would write and they were like, you got to tell me what, what was it? You know, what, 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 you know, what was the reason for this? Or did this person do actually do this that started the whole thing off? And, uh, you know, of course, I, I never tell them because, I mean, I, I don't know. I could have wrote, written in any different ways, but it's, it's funner to have to leave some room for people to, you know, to imagine. Yeah. There was a book one time, a painting I did of a, a little girl on a tractor. It's just, it's from around here. She posed in a barn near us and she was reading a book, sitting on a tractor in a barn. And so many people said, oh, I remember when I used to do that when I was a kid. Um, and we had a show in New York and, uh, there was a school group that was brought in and they were given a thing to fill stuff out for the paintings about what their reactions to. Mm -hmm. And the teacher, one of the things they set up for that painting was uh, they asked all the kids, what do you think this little girl's reading? And it was so funny too, because when she asked people and they're supposed to write down, but the kids couldn't help. They, they said, cause it was a grade school and they're like, Oh, I know exactly. I think it was like a third or fourth grade. They're like, I know exactly what she's reading. I can tell by the by her expression. And the, and, and the other person is like, Whoa, what? What teacher's like, what? And the little girl's like, She's reading Harry Potter because actually <laughs> she did, had to go pose, and so she was reading a book. And, and it's like, Oh, and another girl's like, No, she's not. I can tell she's reading the Bible because that's in the South and it's very religious. And, and my grandmother would always give us the Bible to read. And uh, everybody had different different. Uh, different things to read and it was funny in that case I actually knew the answer because the girl had posed for us her name, her name um, was Maya and uh, so but so they wanted to know what she was really reading and uh, I, but I, I was like oh I don't know you'll have to just you know you have to imagine but I actually did know what she was reading and it actually was Harry Potter so oh, the okay. one girl was right <laughs> so here I am laughing and yeah <laughs> it was okay so I know she was actually right, but the other <laughs> kids were absolutely they were they were as certain of their guesses with all the different guesses they had. So, oh, but I think cool. it made that fun because then they had and then when Sue Sue had a painting of a, of a girl that was looking off, and it was so funny. And the teacher asked them, "Now I want you to tell me what do you think she's looking at off the canvas?" And everybody came up with these amazing creative stories of their own so oh, so that's yeah. kind of what art is it's like a jumping off point art and writing yeah absolutely and we have um a lot of conversations in my with my students in my class um because they're 
they're fascinated that I do both. And I, you know, I tell them, I said, I'm just creating guys, you know, the process is somewhat similar. And, and we get in these whole conversations around, well, you have to have the foundation and the foundation is you have to create your characters. And, and in a painting, you know, you have to have your value pattern and your, you know, so we go through all these conversations and they just mm -hmm. go, you know, they look at me and like say, well, you know, I think I better tackle one at a time. It's like, you don't have to, you know, but if that's what you want to do, you know, you can. So, yeah, so it is an interesting conversation and I'm definitely leaving it up to um, painting or writing, leaving it up to others' interpretation and what they think's going on in it, I think so, is what makes both of them, you know, the book or the painting more interesting. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we're right. studying it, studying your craft is the important thing. Absolutely. So, well, Scott, I probably have kept you for like 90 minutes. So <laughs> we're getting close <laughs> to that. Um, let me flip on you. We got this last thing here. Tell me um, what do you've got? What do you have coming up? A lot of painting time. Uh, what do I have coming up? Uh, well, I'm just painting right now. It's nice to be home and, uh, and I'm writing a bit. Uh, and then we go to in a few weeks, we go to Prita West show in Oklahoma City uh, for that the museum there for that show. Um, and then we go to, uh, I don't know, we have several trips. Who would be able to tell you the dates? There's one on the East Coast. She's doing a workshop. She's doing a few workshops this year. I'm not doing any oh, this okay. year, but I'm just going to go and I'm just going to paint. And we have a show there with like Nancy Guzik and Richard Schmidt and Kathy Anderson and some other of our friends oh, cool. at the Bennington Center. And we're going to, to Edinburgh. Sue's going to teach there. I'll just paint. And then we're going to go to Florence. She's going to teach at one of the academies there, and I'll just paint. And oh, nice! And we have uh, yeah, some a couple other shows that we send things to. So yeah, yeah. cool. So just just the usual. And then I'm just always writing. I'm either write. I'm, I'll write at home, and and I'll write in on these trips. I'll write in the mornings usually. Um, I, I don't know exactly which one I'm going to do right right now. Uh, I was playing around with one where all the nuclear weapons in the world have been launched and everybody wakes up to alarms and they know that they only have about 30 minutes left before basically every nuclear weapon in the world. They're not, not certain exactly who started it, but it's like a chain reaction. Uh, well, it would be. start launching against each other. And so they really realize the question is, what would you do if you only had 30 minutes left to live? And I actually asked a whole bunch of people this question. I got some interesting answers from people. And so you see what happens in this 30 minutes. But then at the end of it, uh, the, as the nuclear weapons start to land, none of them go off. They, all of them. You told the us the world. ending. <laughs> no, that's not the ending. That's, oh, the, okay. that's just the, the first chapter. That's oh. the first chapter, actually, of the book. They all land. None of them go off. And um, then the question is, what happened? You know, is it some people think it's God? Some people think there must be some hacker or whatever. And so it becomes, you know, the world, of course, now that all nuclear weapons are gone, yeah. uh, it changes things, too, because, you know, yep. you know, some countries now are more powerful because of their. But so it goes then for a long time after that and, and the implications of what this is and what what stopped it. So it's just kind of a fun uh, speculative sort of story, but it, it's it's goes to a lot of people's, you know, in their, their motivations for what motivates you for life, you know, and if you only had certain time left to live. And so it was kind of fun. 
cool. <laughs> but no, and, that's not the end. That's actually just the first chapter. So. Oh wow! Cool. <laughs> I won't tell you the real, the real secrets of of why this happened. Yeah, so. no, no spoilers allowed. <laughs> so, but I um, yeah. I like I said, just finished book four, and the opening part part one of the first chapter is. Um, it starts in Russia, and again, this, the books are set in 1980s, so this is 1980, yeah, it starts in December of 1980 and then goes into 1981, and uh, it's when we had the detente going on and um, and how Russia was basically skimming off the, you know, finding in very um, cool ways to to boost their technology, their science and technology from the West using detente as a, as a weapon to, to do that. And uh, so, you know, it, it's talking about nuclear war too at that time, because of course we're both nuclear powers are going at it, both Russia and the United States, you know, we need more nukes here and there and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting that we're both on that, <laughs> that wavelength right now. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's fun. It's fun to think about. And once you start writing things, I'm sure as you, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to read about and, and um, you know, kind of do all the research for, you know, for how things work and what would actually happen if this happened. It, it, you learn a lot. Yeah. A lot of times uh, the first book, not so much. The one that you listen to doesn't have that in. But the second and third book actually um, goes into a really obscure operation that the CIA had in place and it, inf- and it affects my characters. And then this next three books that I have coming in is another operation that was run by the CIA and it was actually uh, an international um, they, they had to work with the DST in France and um, it involves the KGB and all of that so the next three books are on that particular how that particular operation ended up um, changing the course of history in a way so um, I've gotten into finding these very very obscure <laughs> CIA FBI KGB <laughs> DST type stuff and been reading a lot of NSA documents and things like that. So it's, it's you know, kind of interesting, all the little stuff that goes on. So anyway, um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. If you like listening to Art Chats and you'd like to support the podcast, you know, you can become a patron over at the my Patreon page. So patreon.com, Linda Riesenberg Fissler, and pledge levels start as low as a dollar. And um, you can go up higher if you would like. Um, it takes a little bit of time to, or a little bit of time and um, some money monthly, uh, over $100 to get these podcasts recorded and updated and out there and stored uh, for everybody to enjoy. So if you'd like to become a patron, we'd like, we'd love to have you do that. There are rewards at each of the levels, so you can look at what those are. And if you have any questions, you can let me know. Oh, I think Scott came back Thanks, in. Linda. Hey, Scott. I did. I, just, I timed out. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You know what? I think I only said it for 90 minutes. So that probably we were right at 90 minutes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So I just actually just started to to wrap things up because I I, I asked you a question and then you kind of like disappeared. So I, I said, well, I think I lost Scott. So, <laughs> so I was just telling him about the Patreon page. And, and for those out there who don't know what Patreon is, it's basically a way for creatives to find patrons. Um, so that's what it, it's very, very, very helpful page. I think they've been around for about five years now. And, um, I think they said there's like over $300 million collectively. For, so for everybody on Patreon, Patreon doesn't get that money. The actual creator gets a portion of 
that money as in what you pledge. So um, they take a very, very small cut of that. And uh, it's actually, the more I learn about it, the more I really like it because it also provides a great way for you to stay engaged with the people who are um, being your patrons. So you can have a lot more engagement with them and, and talk to them and you actually get to know who they are and, and you get to know the creative. So it's a really kind of cool, cool little thing that I stumbled upon. So check it out. And again, Scott, thanks so much for being here. I, you may not have heard, but I said, you know, thank you for the 90 minutes of your time today. And I'm sure that we've given oh, everybody yeah, a lot to think about. And, um, and I always enjoy talking with you and, um, you know, wish you guys luck. Say hello to Susan for me. And um, OK, yeah, that was really fun. Definitely. I look forward to your next book. Oh, thanks. Like, well, I actually probably ought to. <laughs> I read Blind Persuasion, author reading. Um, that'll be offered out on my patron page off as author readings every once in a while. Um, cool. I'd read the whole book in three days, you know, taping myself gave me a whole new respect and appreciation for Gabriella and Stefan. Nothing like them. My, oh, my, yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's times I actually ought to leave an uncut version out there because everybody would crack up laughing because right before it's very hard to go for Like I said, this is where the appreciation comes in. It's very hard to go from a Southern accent to a British accent. So if you listen real closely before I say one of the, the British accent lines, I'll be sitting there, you know, I'll be sitting there going, Bond, James Bond, <laughs> trying to do the British accent. It really got hilarious. And then when um, when I had to speak Jenkinson's line, I sit there and go, North Carolina, North Carolina. Okay, now I'm ready. You know, so. so anyway, it was. I don't think I'd be able to do that. I don't think I'd be able to handle all those accents. Oh, it, yeah. It was crazy. No it was crazy. And I, like I said, I am not an actress. Thank God. <laughs> it, but the, you know, it just gave me a whole new respect and, and appreciation for what they do for a living. It's um, it's amazing. That is so cool that you had them also do your book. How did you find out about them? Um, through you. It, had it, was, was it, oh, through, through, through my book. Oh, that's yeah. neat. Well, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, and I actually had Gabrielle on our chats. She talked about uh, visual storytelling. So. Wonderful. Yeah, the whole the whole thing, <laughs> it was just kind of crazy because um, I contacted them shortly after um, I found them through your book and then through um, then we did an Gabrielle and I did an art chat and then she talked to me about my books afterwards. And um, I think we talked probably on and off for about um, four or five months. And of course, anybody who tries to get their books published this it's not cheap you know i mean these and it's and certainly the amount of talent that you're purchasing for them to read your book is you know so worth it it i can't talk right. about you know how much it is worth it i mean these these guys are audi award-winning people and skyboats won oh, yeah. awards and you know so they're they're the cream of the crop they're up there um so I had to, you know, work to get the money pulled together for that. And, and then, you know, I call and I would say, okay, you know, we're going to do it. Let's do it. And then I was like, okay. And then I had to write them a note and say, we can't do it. And they're like, what happened? I'm like, oh, well, no. I'm like, well, Tom fell off his bike. <laughs> Tom crashed on his bike and oh, I'm not sure goodness. what's going to happen. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I probably didn't tell you that story, but anyway, I'll, I'll tell you it offline. But, you know, so <laughs> like, again, I get this email back from Gabriel and says, oh my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> she's just like, because we were go, no, go, go, no, go. You know, and finally, finally, we gave them the go ahead and, oh. and they worked me into the schedule. Yeah. They were just wonderful. They were just wonderful. So yeah, anyhow, they're, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can't exciting. wait to get out. Yeah, I can't wait to get out to California because I told him if I ever get out there, I'm just going to stop by and bring him lunch or something. So, because um, I want right. to meet him in person. But they're, um, yeah, they're they're great. So, anyway, we'll probably talk for another 90 minutes. <laughs> we well, good. Well, it was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, it was wonderful yeah, talking absolutely. to you. Yeah, we certainly could. <laughs> yeah, we could. So call me anytime. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's nice. Well, good one. Well, I'm going to go back to painting the girl with the curl in her head and. Uh, you go back to uh, to writing, I guess. Yeah, well, I wish I could. <laughs> Get I have those to, books done. Yeah, I have to go actually go out and um, repu- and and put on the thing for our sprinkler system. So my husband's been waiting patiently. So need to go. But oh, okay. Nice. So everybody, thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you all next time.